Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Novoretti. This is Stephen Robles and this week we have special guest Mark David Hall and he's going to be discussing his book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? It's a great interview. Before we jump in, we want to remind you one more time about impact360.org. They have incredible online courses about truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection and you can get $25 off when you use the promo code FREEMIND and that's at impact360360. Also, don't forget to check out their gap year program for seniors that have recently graduated and before going to university, they can go to the Impact 360 Institute in a nine-month gap year program and learn about apologetics, develop a great biblical foundation for their worldview, and be ready to engage with cultures that go off to university. You can get your application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND. And now here's our interview with Mark David Hall. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth the Nerva here. Even got Brother Robles back yes, in the house today. Yes, we all back together. He's been on hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> he thought he was mad at us, either that or he con- contracted coronavirus. And no, no, no. Been taken to some uh, clandestine <laughs> apartment or something we didn't know, know about. Days. No, but in my bunker, that's all. That's right. <laughs> okay, so today we're excited to have a guest with us. His name is Mark David Hall, who's been a professor at George Fox University since 2001, received a BA in political science from Wheaton College, a PhD in government from the University of Virginia. I mean, his resume is so impressive. He's associated with George Fox University. Um, Herbert Hoover Institute, I think. Yeah, Emory and Baylor, written hundreds of articles in 12 books. And he's here with us. <laughs> and we're so today. grateful. Thank you for being with us, Mark. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And thankfully, he has uh, condescended to write this book, if you can see it there, <laughs> for all of us non-scholarly types. He go. said it's uh, 25 to 30 years of scholarly work condensed down into like, I don't know, 150 pages, 100, 170 pages, something like that. But it's an amazing book. We, Nerv so and I have already started it. And what I love about it is um, I would just recommend if you're listening to this, go on and go to Amazon as you listen and click on it and buy right this book. You can get go, it audible. Uh, Kindle or good old fashioned. This is what my wife made me get the good old fashioned. I love books. I rather uh, book. <laughs> no, it's great. But you know yeah. what you're getting is a lot of scholarly depth. But like I said, it's it's brought to a level. If you've ever read a, a scholarly book, whether it's history or philosophy, you feel like you're drudging through uh, like every little tiny detail. But what I love about this, it's underneath. But he gives you the yeah, flow of the story. So you get the big cool. picture a lot quicker. So grab this book. We're going to talk about this and more today. Yay. Well, in 2010, you gave a talk entitled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And that seemed to spark a chord with a lot of people. Can you give us the context for that lecture and what sparked from that since then? Sure, certainly. I'd be happy to. So that was at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. And I think why it sparked a lot of interest is because scholar after scholar, popular writer after popular writer, has said that most of America's founders were deists, that is, not particularly orthodox Christians who maybe believed in a creator God who doesn't bother himself with the affairs of men and nations. Um, So scholar after scholar says the founders were deists, they created a godless constitution, they desired the strict separation of church and state. And I think for a lot of Americans, especially on the more conservative side of things, this never really sounded quite right. And so I gave this talk, arguing, in fact, that that's not right at all. It's it's profoundly wrong. 
And we found out a couple years later that the talk had been downloaded 300,000 times, which is quite a, quite a bunch for an academic. So I've written a number of books. Many of them only sell like 600 or 700 copies, and they mostly go out and go to other scholars. And so I was able to use those figures to help convince a publisher, a popular publisher, Nelson Books, to let me write this book that's aimed at the general reading public. So I don't at all try to talk down to anyone. I just try to get rid of a bunch of the scholarly jargon and the excessive footnoting and write in a way that is hopefully a pleasure to read. So were you always interested in history and politics? What was the catalyst that made you go down this trail at all? And before you jump into that, uh, Mark, I want to translate for our listeners. What you said is so true. You know, Nerva and I are in the artistic world, uh, music world. So, you know, you used to seeing pop artists, stuff like, not us, but other pop artists with like 300,000, like no problem. But you're <laughs> right. Like we have, we have decided that the the smarter you are, the more substance you bring, the less followers, the less views. And so if you that's translate exactly. 300,000 views from a scholarly into the pop oh, world, that's, that's like, that's, that's Justin Bieber level <laughs> uh, viral <laughs> right true. there. So anyway, sorry, I just no. want to translate that real quick. Go ahead. No, your uh, just your uh, interest in politics and American history, were you always interested in that field? And what started that? Yeah, you know, it did come naturally. We, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And my um, family received the Washington Post. So I'd read the newspaper, not all the way through, of course, but probably more than the average high school kid. And we just happened to go to a church that um, had the, the executive director of the Christian Legal Society, which is a relatively small Christian legal advocacy group that fights for religious liberty. And so I've always been interested in religious liberty and church-state relations. I interned there as a high school student, and then I interned there again as a college student. And really, my entire scholarly career has pretty much been centered around the questions of religious liberty, church-state relations, and the American context. What is the big picture? Um, I guess I want to ask, why are so many um, academics opposed to the idea that we had, that our founders were influenced by Christian principles and values? Well, that's a big question. That's a million-dollar question. I think there are a couple of things going on. Um, For one thing, I think scholars are oftentimes drawn to the bright, shiny objects, much like um, ravens, maybe, or crows. And so with (laughs) American founding, you know, someone like Thomas Jefferson stands out. I mean, here's a man years ahead of his time in many respects. He's highly educated. He spends a lot of time in Europe. He's writing, you know, very eloquently. And so they're drawn to him. And then a lot of other founders, kind of regular people in the Massachusetts legislature, the the Connecticut legislature, and the Confederation Congress, they just ignore. And so it's somewhat of a selection bias, I would suggest. As well, and more more so for this era era of history than many eras of history, there are immediate implications for law and public policy. Politicians routinely vie for the founder's legacy. If you can say that, that Jefferson and Washington and Adams support what I support, that goes a long way, even today. And then particularly in the realm of religious liberty, church-state relations, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1947 made it crystal clear that we must interpret the First Amendment religion clauses in light of the founders' views. And so most academics want to see the strict separation of church and state, and so they go back and they make arguments that the founders desired the strict separation of church and state because they want that policy outcome today. And it's just wrong. It's just flat out wrong. And maybe we can talk about that some later if you'd like. 
Yeah, for sure. I look forward to getting into that. And so again, the title of the book is Did America Have a Christian Founding? Uh, Every word has weight and kind of needs an explanation in there. And in the subtitle here, Separating Modern Myth from Historical Mm -hmm. Truth. So we kind of got an idea what the modern myth that anybody who studied history in the university, but even at the popular level, the modern myth is, you know, basically America was founded as a secular nation informed by deists. Um, That was the driving force behind it. Well, what is the historical truth? Well, just big picture wise. Yeah, let me address that question by addressing the title. So, did America have a Christian founding? It's important to define our terms. So, what would a Christian founding look like? Mm-hmm. I want to emphasize Christian there. Um, do we simply mean that the founders identified themselves as Christians? If that's what we mean, then indisputably we had a Christian founding. Basically, 98% of the founders of European descent identified themselves as Protestant. The other 2% were Roman Catholics. And then you have maybe 2,000 Jews in four or five American cities. So it's no question if that's what we mean, but that's also very uninteresting. These might've been very bad Christians. They might've been Christians intentionally attempting to found a secular republic. I consider a few other options. I'll just mention one and then I'll go to the one I land on. We might say that these founders acted like Christians in every respect. And here people might say, oh, look at Alexander Hamilton. He had an extramarital affair. Christians don't have extramarital affairs. Therefore, we didn't have a Christian founding. I I think that's just silly. If the test of being a Christian is is moral purity, then none of us are Christians. We all fall short. Alexander Hamilton might have fallen short in a bigger way than most of us, um, but we all have sinned. And so that's just kind of a silly way to approach the topic. So what I ended ended up arguing is really what scholar after scholar has argued. Scholar after scholar has contended that America's founders were influenced by this secular enlightenment, by Lockean liberalism, by classical republicanism, by the Scottish school of moral sense. And so I basically make the argument that they were in fact influenced by Christian ideas and by biblical ideas. So I'm talking about intellectual influence. And this is important because we know someone like a Thomas Jefferson, at least towards the end of his life, is not an Orthodox Christian. But I think we can still show that he was influenced in important ways by Christian ideas. And by the same token, someone like a Roger Sherman, for instance, and many of them were Orthodox Christians. Um, but you know, you could be an Orthodox Christian and be influenced by bad ideas or by secular ideas. But instead, I argue that even the Orthodox Christians were influenced by Christian ideas or ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. That's really good. And just to, just to kind of recap that important point for our listeners, you're, you have a specific idea of what you mean by Christian, and it doesn't mean that, A, that they lived necessarily purely Christian lives, which anybody who's, you know, attended church for any period of time wouldn't hold that standard uh, to their pastors. Unfortunately, you know, we've, we've, anybody who's been in church, we've seen moral failures. And um, outside of Donald Trump, no other president has lived morally pure. I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, <laughs> you know, That's wrong, but, brother. <laughs> but, you know, the, so this idea of moral purity and all this kind of stuff is a, is a necessary criterion for Christian is obviously false. But even the other one you said, like just counting heads mm. um, and saying which one's claimed and identified as Christians isn't the best test. But it's actually these principles, which we'll talk about in a minute. Before we jump into that, can you talk about um, founders? Because there's two aspects of the founding that I want you to address. One is the timing, and especially in light of the 1619 Project. 
I don't know how familiar you are with it and we don't have to go into detail, but I think one of the, one of the um, presuppositions of it is, is America was really founded in 1619. And this is the essence of America, racist, um, plundering, you know, killing natives. Um, So that, that would be the timing difference. And then the second aspect would be who are the founders? Sure. Oh, that's a great question. So um, I, I do address three possibilities for when America was founded. One would be these early colonial settlements and I don't spend a lot of time there because I think almost every scholar would admit that the, the colon, early colonies from north to south were heavily influenced by Christian ideas. Instead, I focus on the late 18th century, the War for American Independence, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and the formation of the um, experiment in self-government. So I'm looking at the late 18th century. And by founders, I mean the men and women who were involved in public debates over these matters, over the War for American Independence, over the Constitution. And I include women there because some women did, in fact, even though they couldn't hold elective office, they um, participated in these debates. A little more narrowly, I'm looking at the, the sort of men who showed up at the Constitutional Convention, the First Federal Congress, the Continental Congress, the Confederation Congress. And I think it's very important to recognize that the, the, the founding was a product of a community. We can't just look real hard at Thomas Jefferson and understand the American founding. We have to look more broadly at the broader generation of founders who, um, who contributed to crafting this, this union that we live in. Let me mention briefly, since you brought it up, I actually had a very small section in the book addressing the founders in slavery. And I think we can very rightly criticize the founders for their inability to completely eliminate this evil and vile institution. So slavery is an important part of American history. Um, the first African slaves were brought to America in 1619. And I do think we have to take that seriously. And as Christians, we have to you know, take a hard look at ourselves and the way in which our Christian ancestors were complicit in this evil, horrible, vile institute. Um, but I do think it's a lot more complicated, a heck of a lot more complicated than the 1619 Project. And in the sequel to Did America Have a Christian Founding, I'll have an entire chapter addressing those questions. Let me just briefly, by way of a foretaste, suggest that many, many founders were coming to seriously question the institution of slavery. Many didn't own slaves. Eight states put slavery on the road to extinction between 1776 and 1804. Um, Almost everyone in the founding era thought that slavery was on its way out, and nobody said it was a good thing. It wasn't until the 1830s that any American started saving, saying that slavery is actually a positive good. So America's founders, um, yeah, we can criticize them. We should criticize them. The argument that America is a Christian founding does not mean I'm saying that the founders were perfect in every way, shape, and form. They weren't. No, that's okay. good. And I look, and maybe we'll dig into that too a little bit more um, down the road. Um, you mentioned some of the founders' wives, and I was thinking about in your book, I think you talked specifically about Abigail Adams. And I don't know if you've seen the uh, John Adams uh, special on HBO, but out of a, out of a one to 10, how, what do you give that for historical accuracy if you have seen it? You know, believe it or not, I never saw that. I read the book upon which it was based. There's a wonderful feminist, um, and I believe secular Jewish professor down at Stanford who contributed a chapter on Abigail Adams for a book I co-edited. And I will say she hated it. They said that they made her appear to be some modern feminist, you know, powerful woman. Okay. And that was not at all the sort of woman that Abigail Adams was. She was, of course, a, a, a forceful woman, a um, well-educated woman, 
a woman who was intimately involved with um, John and uh, John Adams, and they had a partnership. But the way, according to her, that the HBO series presented her, just in no way, shape, or form would she have dressed like she dressed. She wouldn't have been out in the garden, you know, gardening in, in the way that they portrayed her and that sort of thing. Very good. See, I love those little insights you never yes. get anywhere else. Um, but yeah, so my, my next question in, in that context would be, what did, how do you define founders? Like, are they the people that just, the people and their wives that were just involved in drawing up the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? I know you touched on this already, but can you give us a little more clarity on that? Yeah, so I would say um, the men and women who were immediately involved in debating the War for American Independence, the U.S. Constitution, the state constitutions, the revisions of laws in the late 18th century that went on, and then eventually the Bill of Rights. So that is a broader definition of founders. Now, a lot of the people, if you read my book, you'll recognize a lot of the names because, you know, I do focus a bit more on the more important ones, a George Washington, a John Adams, a Madison, a Sherman, a Wilson, Hamilton. Um, but I do think we have to go and look a bit broader at what, um, what, what the broader founding generation meant with respect to something like the First Amendment, which begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What the U.S. Supreme Court said in 1947 is that we basically have to interpret this provision of the Constitution in light of Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist, where he spoke of a high wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson probably did want something like that, but Jefferson wasn't involved in drafting the First Amendment and ratifying the First Amendment. And when we turn our eyes from Jefferson to the broader founding generation, we see that really no American to speak of, one or two maybe, wanted a high wall of separation between church and state. And I document that by showing and discussing a wide range of laws passed by the states, passed by the first federal Congress, that I think demolished the notion that the founders wanted a wall of separation between church and state. And that's why it is important. We can't just look real carefully at Thomas Jefferson and extrapolate from him to all the founders. It would be similar to looking real carefully at Clarence Thomas and extrapolating from him to all African-Americans with respect to politics. Clarence Thomas is a brilliant man. He's one of my favorite jurists, but he does not represent the political and legal views of the African-American community throughout America today. That would just simply be bad history and bad social science. On that note of uh, separation of church and state, I've heard that term come up in different kinds of conversation and people kind of wield it in different directions. What is a good understanding in 2020 of separation of church and state? Yeah, well, let me begin by quoting Jesus, give unto Caesars what is Caesars, God, and give to God what is God's. Clearly, the Bible teaches that the church and the state are separate institutions, and they ought not to be conflated. The church should never become the state. The state should never become the church. But what people usually mean when they say, and that's why we oftentimes throw the metaphor of a wall in there, a wall of separation between church and state, this suggests that the two should be very, very far apart and they should not attempt to influence each other. And this is particularly problematic when you think about how a wall works. A wall wouldn't just protect the church. It would also suggest that the church shouldn't attempt to influence the state. Ah. Thank goodness that throughout American history, we have not had that view, right? The abolitionist leaders of the 19th century were almost uniformly Christians, often evangelical Christians, bringing their faith into the public square to fight slavery. The American civil rights movement was led by whom? The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, the Reverend Andrew Young, and on and on we go, right? These are religious leaders drawing from the biblical and theological um, 
convictions to fight Jim Crow legislation and fight for equality. It is absolutely appropriate for the church to be involved in politics. So that's a very faulty understanding of the separation of church and state. And let me um, just real quickly quote the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment mm. of religion. If you pay attention to the words, that's a restriction on government. In no way, shape, or form is it a restriction on the church. And that's why we need to be careful to avoid these very dangerous metaphors and stick with what the Constitution actually says. That's okay. good. And I love how you said that the First Amendment, from which people get the idea that they talk about the wall of separation. We could talk more about that history in a minute. I think you mentioned it, but we'll talk more about it. But um, is the restriction is one way. The restriction is on the federal government. Congress shall make no law on church. In fact, it has nothing to do with what it's most times used for at a popular level. And that, of course, presupposes like an originalist view. Mm-hmm. Can you explain just really quickly what that term means and what, what is its opposite? Sometimes you hear um, living constitution or yeah. I don't know what it's termed, but just explain those two. And then what are the reasons we should be originalists? Yeah, sure. So the originalist says that when we're interpreting the Constitution or provision of the Constitution, such as the First Amendment, we go first to the words of the uh, of this provision. And sometimes the words are crystal clear and there really can be no debate. The president of the United States must be 35 years old. We all know what that means. We might think that's a stupid policy. Maybe we know a 33-year-old who would be a far better president than either of the two candidates we have right now. It doesn't matter. The Constitution's clean clear and no matter what we happen to think we should defer to it because we are a nation of laws not of men unless a 20 year old identifies as 36 but yeah go ahead (laughs) this has become a problem yeah by the by the same token my wife who was born in egypt to egyptian parents immigrated over here when she was one we might think it's ridiculous that she's constitutionally ineligible to become president Mm. but the constitution clearly says that you have to be a natural born Citizen. So the originalist will go first to the text, but what about when the text is not clear? Um, cruel and unusual punishment of the Eighth Amendment, an establishment of religion in the First Amendment. Here, the originalist would say, okay, let's go beyond the words. We start with the words, but we go beyond the words to see if we can get a sense of what people in the late 18th century meant when they talked about an established church when they argued for it or when they argued against it. What did they mean? What did, it, so in the context, we can understand what it means. And one reason I think it's important to be an originalist, and I am an originalist, is because, again, we are a government of laws. Um, the, the living Constitution folks, by way of contrast, say that, well, pretty much we can just reinterpret the Constitution to mean what we think it ought to mean, regardless of what the words or the original intent was. Um, this is kind of scary. We are now a government of men or women or men and women who are, happen to have power and they can make up whatever they want. And so here I would, this might seem like even a liberal or progressive point, but after 9-11, there were some people who are really pushing to remove a lot of the protections that American citizens enjoy um, from wiretrapping and from an intrusion of privacy and this sort of thing. And if we just simply went with the spirit of the times, we might say, yes, we're th- facing threats um, unlike we've faced before. But fortunately, we have something called the Fourth Amendment that prevents um, these sorts of searches and seizures. It's a limitation on them, and that's a good thing. It's a restraint on government. By the same token, I think it's very nice that we have an Establishment Clause. It clearly says that the United States of America will not have an established church. What did this mean? It means what the words say. We won't have an established church. Everyone knew what it meant. England to this day has an established church, the Church of England. 
most of the colonies and its states had established church. The Anglican Church was the official established church of Virginia, the Congregational Church of Massachusetts, and the Constitution said we are not going to have an official established church for the United States of America. By extension through the um, 14th Amendment, this amendment now applies to states. And so Oregon, California, Washington, Florida cannot have established churches either. But beyond that, there's lots of room for the church and the state to cooperate. For instance, governments can make religious accommodations to protect um, religious citizens, such as pacifists. A state could adopt a program that would allow a Lutheran preschool to participate in a program that would provide safe playground services. There's no violation of the First Amendment when it comes to these sorts of matters and many other matters that we could talk about. And those are two real cases I was talking about. I was just making mm. up examples. Um, can you summarize the case that comes against you? In other words, the case that says, well, no, there should be a wall of separation, kind of the freedom from religion organizations that are around today, and then give a critique of that. Yeah, so there is, of course, an organization called Freedom From Religion. And um, I'm trying to be fair to them. I, I think the accurate description is they just hate religion, and they hate um, and, and they believe that we should have a completely secularized public square. And so whenever um, a, a city or state places, say, a monument of the Ten Commandments or a um, or something like that on public ground, they say, this cannot be. This violates the, the Establishment Clause. So ultimately, I suppose they would maybe go back to the Establishment Clause. From an originalist perspective, I think it's pretty obviously the case that placing a monument of the Ten Commandments a monument that is uh, the Ten Commandments, of course, being accepted by Jews and Muslims and Christians, and generally as containing good moral teachings by even people who are not necessarily religious, placing a monument in, the, say, the, the courthouse square in no way, shape, or form constitutes an established church. This is not establishing a church. It might not be good public policy. Maybe we should argue against it, but it is in no way, shape, or form an established church. I think the only way the freedom from religion people can get there is by being very ahistoric about what the um, Establishment Clause requires. They believe that it requires a high wall of separation between church and state. There is no good historical argument to that effect. You might make a public policy argument, I guess. You, you could say perhaps, well, it might, it might lead to discord if a city put a monument of the Ten Commandments in the public square. I, I think in practice, though, when you look at what happens when states or cities or counties do this sort of thing, it actually is almost never controversial. Nobody really cares except for a couple of loudmouths from the ACLU or the Americans United for Separation of Church and State or the Freedom from Religion Foundation people. Very poor arguments with respect to the, the Establishment Clause, in my humble opinion. And it, what's interesting, too, that you point out in your book, I believe, that the only place that even language came from was the, the letter from Thomas Jefferson to the, was it the Danbury Baptist in 1802 yeah. or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Um, and that, that's what often people will appeal to. But you, as you mentioned, Thomas Jefferson wasn't even involved in constructing the First Amendment or ratifying it. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think you just made a critically important point. If we're interested in the original understanding of the Establishment Clause, then what we need to do is look at the men who drafted it and the men who ratified it in the state legislatures, maybe looking at public debates about it, and we can get a pretty good idea of what it means. Thomas Jefferson was over in France at the time. 
there is no reason that we should privilege him in any way, shape, or form in understanding what this document means. Let me do concede that, that Jefferson and James Madison wanted a greater degree of separation between church and state than did most founders. And James Madison is, of course, involved in drafting the First Amendment. But if I can go back to Thomas Jefferson, there's a great little story I tell in my book. Literally, I kid you not, literally two days after he finished drafting this letter to the Danbury Baptist, he went to church services in the U.S. Capitol building. And he heard John Leland, the great Baptist itinerant minister, and himself an opponent of religious establishments, preach. Um, Jefferson also allowed the War Department building and the Treasury Department building, over which he had direct control, to be used for church services in the nation's capital. And I think the story illustrates that even Jefferson himself did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. And I give plenty of other examples where Jefferson did not act in that way. I'll give one, just one last story, if I may. Um, he was on a committee of three to create a national seal. Jefferson thought a national seal should be the people of Israel fleeing across the Red Sea with Moses in hot pursuit. Wow. And the, and the waves, of course, the water is closing in on the Egyptians. And his motto for the United States of America would have been rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. So again, even Jefferson, even though he used this metaphor, the wall of separation between church and state, he certainly did not act as if there was such a wall in place. And when we turn from Jefferson to the rest of the founding generation, we see almost no support for anything approximating what the Freedom From Religion Foundation people want today. Wow. So for organizations like the Freedom From Religion, is it that they just want monuments like the Ten Commandments removed? Or what is it that they're actually looking for? Like in their mind, what is the ideal form of government that is actually freedom from religion? Whether they state it publicly or not, what do you think they're after? You know, for sure, they're absolutely in favor of a naked public square. So no religious imagery, no religious language anywhere in the public square. And they even want to tear down very old monuments. Um, and they actually weren't the main plaintiffs in this case, but just a couple of summers ago, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case involving a, a mammoth concrete cross that was erected in 1925 to commemorate World War I dead. They would tear it down or, or require it to be moved, but there's really no practical way to move something like that. Um, they would utterly and absolutely scrub religion from the public square. And I think they would also argue that making religion, religious arguments uh, with respect to political matters is illegitimate. It ought not to be done. Now, I think they would tread very lightly around the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Because in all fairness, I'm, I don't think they're advocates of segregation. They like the outcome of that. But as a matter of principle, I have no idea how they could say that it was appropriate for the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to make the very religious arguments he was making in the public square. And they certainly wouldn't, um, in principle, be able to support members of Congress making religious arguments to abolish segregation or to ban abortion or to support the, the poor, the weak, the dispossessed. They would just want religion removed from the equation altogether. Absolutely nothing in the Constitution that requires it. I don't think anything in our Christian convictions um, requires us to do that. Sometimes it's a matter of rhetoric. We should maybe tone down our biblical and theological language just because it's ineffective. If, if you're down in San Francisco and you're arguing about a matter of public concern, probably quoting the Bible is not going to be the most effective way to win public support. And so you might just make prudential arguments or other sorts of arguments, but there's nothing that requires us not to make religious arguments in the public square. 
You give some great examples of um, the kinds of rights that our founders were trying to protect that are directly tied to Christian principles. Do you feel like, can you give some examples of those? Yes, sure. I'd love to. Um, one of my favorite, of course, is the founders were, were convinced that humans are created the Imago Dei, the image of God. James Wilson, um, an author of the Declaration, well, a signer of the Declaration, a significant author of the Constitution, an early Supreme Court justice, gives a um, wonderful series of law lectures at the College of Philadelphia, which is now the University of Pennsylvania. And he, he explores what it means to be created in the image of God. He says, look, um, because of this, innocent human life must be protected from the womb to its natural end. And so um, certainly he was criticizing abortion, but he was also criticizing other, other countries like the Hindus that would, in India, that would at the time uh, burn the wives of a man who died. He says this is inappropriate. He even addressed suicide. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, is there a right to kill yourself? No, because you're not your own property. You're God's property. And so you ought not to take what doesn't belong to you. Um, a very, very, very important implication of the Simago Dei that was beginning to resound with many founders is if we really believe that all humans are created in the image of God, and Orthodox Christians never were under any misapprehension that all people, regardless of color or ethnicity, ultimately are created in the image of God, then how can one person own another person? And so these early abolitionists that really had gotten going early in, in the mid-18th century, and were starting to go really strongly towards the end of the 18th century, were motivated by this concept of Imago Dei. This is why I said it briefly before, but let me say it again. Um, eight states voluntarily abolished slavery or put it on the path to extinction between 1776 and 1804. We tend to think nothing happened until 1863. That just simply is false. Um, one other tidbit about this is more than a tidbit. It's one of the most important pieces of legislation ever passed by the Confederation Congress in 1787 banned slavery in the Northwest Territories. That is the territories that we now know as Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and so forth. Banned slavery. Um, this was re-ratified, re re-approved by the first federal Congress. And this is one of the things that gave many founders a, a confidence that slavery is on its way out. The Northern states and Mid-Atlantic states are banning it up voluntarily. The, it won't continue into the Northwest. Um, slavery was always more entrenched in the South, but I think there was even an optimism that it was on its way out down there, in part because people understood it was unjust, but also in part because there was a, a pretty powerful consensus that it was actually unprofitable. So there's really no good reason to have slavery. Eli Whitney comes along and ruins it by his invention of the cotton gin that really gave slavery a new lease on life in the American South. And eventually it became so profitable that I think people rationalized themselves into believing that it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, you know, one of the one of the many good takeaways I got from this book was I learned Ethan Allen is more than a furniture store. I had no idea that he was one of the founders. And in fact, that you say that he was actually one of the most clear cut cases of deism. Um, but um, do you ever get the response that like, well, if you're saying the founders were applying Christian ideals to government, and not enlightenment or, or deists or ones that were of the product of their age. How did so many Christians miss it from Constantine up to that point when they had power? Why did they establish theocracies? And what did the founders see in the Bible that they didn't see? Mm. 
<laughs> you know, it's a, um, it's a very good question. There's a good recent book. Um, I forget the exact title. It's on the Christian origins of religious liberty. And the author points out that actually there were, there were church fathers, early church fathers, who were making principled biblical arguments for religious liberty. But I do think, as you suggested, that Constantine, when he became a Christian, and then Theodosius, um, who followed him, when Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, um, there's a natural tendency, uh, it's, it's an understandable tendency, but it's a bad tendency, to say, oh, look at that, I can use the power of the state to do good, and is it not good to punish heretics and encourage people to become Christians? Yeah, that's obviously a good thing, right? So let's do it. And so I think Christians were drawn into this natural temptation. However, beginning in the 16th century and really picking up in the 17th century, you have Christians who begin to make very explicit biblical and theological arguments in favor of religious liberty. And some of these are really quite simple, right? It's things like the golden rule. If I lived in a Muslim country, I wouldn't want the Muslims to force me to be a Muslim or to punish me for being a Christian. So by the same token, um, in a, a country populated by Christians, we ought not to force Muslims to be Christians or persecute them for the religious view. So people are making these arguments, people like William Penn, Roger Williams, Isaac Backus, and others. And so religious liberty is on the advance in the American colonies. We don't have to wait to the late 18th century to get it. Uh, but by the time we do get to the late 18th century, there's a profound consensus that religious liberty must be robustly protected. And where I differ, a lot of people recognize that, where I differ from many of my colleagues is they attribute that to enlightenment rationalism, whereas I suggest that might have played a role, but really Christianity and biblical arguments and theological arguments um, are the main reason that most founders believe that religious liberty was so important. They called it a sacred right, the sacred right of conscience. And you derive that conclusion from, you know, the, the, I guess the primary documents, just the back and forth between all of them? Like, what are you seeing when you're looking at those primary documents from that time that give you that thought that it wasn't mainly or mostly the Enlightenment informing it, but it, it was actually coming directly out of biblical principles? Yeah, that's a wonderful, um, wonderful point. And just so we're all clear, by a primary source document, you mean, of course, a document from the 18th century, a letter, a petition, a law. When you read these, when you read a wide range of them, um, the, 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 the biblical arguments are explicitly made, scripture is quoted, um, there are theological arguments that are made, um, it's just indisputable. I quote one of my favorite petitions against um, Patrick Henry's bill to provide a general assessment to um, support churches. Let me back up a minute in Virginia because this is kind of an interesting story. So in Virginia, the Anglican church at one time was the one established church. People in Virginia decided this is probably not a good idea, so let's get rid of that. Patrick Henry was a very devout man, and he felt very powerfully about the importance of Christianity. And so he proposed a bill that really is a very generous bill. He said that basically the state would tax you to support the church you choose to attend. So if you choose to attend an Anglican church, you'll be taxed to support that church. But if you choose to attend a Presbyterian church, you'll be taxed to support that church. And same with the Baptist and on and on and on. So no one is being forced to pay for something they don't want to pay for. And if you're a rare person who didn't attend church or at least pretend to be a church member, you could have your money sent to, um, to, to schools. All right, so this, um, this is a pretty mild proposal, but it, 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 it um, led to a lot of petitions about why this is such a bad idea. 
advocates for this petition, they made arguments literally like this, I kid you not. They said, basically, we must have the state subsidize churches so that churches can't afford to pay ministers a good salary. Because if churches can't do that, then the best and the brightest young men will decide to go become doctors or attorneys or something else. There is a wonderful petition that was the most popular petition in this debate over Patrick Henry's general assessment bill. I quoted from it at length. But basically, these evangelical Christians, these Baptists and Presbyterians, basically said this, we do not want ministers to be motivated by money. We want them to be motivated by the Holy Ghost. And if they are so motivated, this will lead to pure and, and, and robust Christianity. And I, I can't quote it um, at length without reading it, but it's just, it's, it's an obvious Christian argument against general assessments. And you have plenty of, general, uh, of obviously Christian arguments arguing in favor of religious liberty as well. It's just everywhere if you bother to take the time to look. Let me mention briefly a book I edited, co-edited. I received no royalties from this. I'm not trying to make money, but the book is called The Sacred Rights of Conscience. Mm -hmm. It's the size of a phone book. It's a collection of primary source documents, and you can order it on Amazon Prime for $14.50. So I, I would commend this to you um, if you want to dive into these documents yourselves. We have tons of documents, including those like Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist. So this is some sort of Christian book that only has kind of pro-Christian arguments. Um, we have a wide range of things, but because it's so large, we have a lot of documents and you just can't read through these documents and not get that many founders were motivated by their Christian convictions. Wow. Um, you know, and I know you've talked elsewhere about your suspicion of government being involved in the church and subsidies and stuff like that. Just out of curiosity, I know there's some Christians that are more on the conspiracy end of things that say don't even have a 501c3. What are your thoughts on that? Should we, should the church move away from all connections to the government like that and so that they don't have any control over us at this point? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so with my understanding of the Establishment Clause, it actually would be constitutionally permissible for a state to say even subsidize churches. But I think this would be a horrible policy. It would be a really, really bad policy because of the golden rule, which is, of course, he who has a gold makes the rules. <laughs> what the state will inevitably do Ooh, it, once okay. it's giving subsidies is it will start saying, oh, yeah, and by the way, you have to do this or you can't do that. And if you don't do what we say, we'll remove your public subsidy. And it's really hard to accept that, right, once you're used to taking money. Um, yeah, so I, I think generally it's good to the extent to which we can keep the state out of the church's business that generally works out well for the church. Now, there are areas where I think the state has appropriate jurisdiction. Um, fire codes, for instance. Yeah, I think it's absolutely appropriate for the state to say a, a church has to adhere to various fire codes because of the health and welfare of, the, of both the parishioners but also other people in the town. So I, I definitely want to say that there's somehow the church's um, can't be touched by the government in any way, shape, or form. If uh, if a minister were to abuse a child, obviously police can investigate and arrest that minister, and that's absolutely appropriate. Um, but generally, to the extent possible, I, I think we want the government out of the church's business. Hmm, so good. How can we do a better job at convincing or showing people that uh, the protection of religious liberties is a good thing for both the religious and the non-religious? Yeah, that, that is a wonderful, wonderful question. I, I think we should uh, make robust arguments in favor of religious liberty. 
Um, for Christians, I think it's particularly important that we insist that the religious liberty of all citizens be protected whenever possible. If we're only defending Christians um, who are under assault, we, we look like hypocrites, right? So when a, um, when, when a Muslim inmate is told he cannot grow a very short beard as he believes his faith dictates, we should be among the first to say no. We should accommodate this. And this is a real life case out of Arkansas. And what was particularly worrisome is Arkansas allowed other inmates who had medical conditions to grow beards. And so it wasn't a policy of no beards ever. It was just, no, Muslim inmate, you're out of luck. You don't get to adhere to your religion. No, we should fight for the Muslim inmates. We should fight for Muslim citizens or Hindu citizens or Sikh citizens or Jewish citizens and show that we have a principled commitment to religious liberty, which we should have for Christian reasons. Um, but I think it's also the pragmatic thing to do. Do you think that, you know, when people say religious liberty, I think young people, you know, 30s, 20s, and younger, they feel like it's being alarmist to say that religious liberty is in danger or that it's at risk of, of being lost. In your opinion, do you feel like this is actually a critical time and we actually do need to be speaking about this a lot and vote and fight for religious liberty? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. I'll answer it um, with a very brief history of religious liberty. So I think our founders had a very robust understanding of religious liberty. As we progress throughout American history, it is not always evenly applied. Catholics were oftentimes uh, discriminated against or even persecuted in the 19th century. Mormons as well, Jehovah's Witnesses in the, in the early 20th century. But by the time we get to the 1960s, we um, really have a pretty profound national consensus that religious liberty should be protected whenever possible. The liberal, the very liberal justice, William Brennan, developed a test, which I think is very useful, because obviously religious liberty is not a trump card that must win every time. We're not going to allow an Aztec to sacrifice a baby to the sun god. And so he developed this test that said, look, when the state is keeping someone from acting on their religious convictions, if the state wants to keep them from doing so, the state has to show that it has a very compelling interest and that it's, that it's doing so, that it's meeting its end in the least restrictive means possible. So this is a very high bar to meet, and it's a bar that's very, very hard to, to, to meet, but it would be met in the case of the Aztec who wants to sacrifice a baby, right? So this is the law of the land until a 1992 case where the U.S. Supreme Court said, oh, just kidding, we actually have a different test. We want it to just simply be neutral. So long as the law is neutral, that's fine. This was a case out of the great state of Oregon that involved a ban on public employees using narcotics, which generally I would say is a good thing. But the way this ban was applied was to keep Native Americans from using peyote in ancient religious ceremonies. I mean, there's no question that they, that they felt they had to use peyote as part of their religious ceremonies. But the Supreme Court said, no, 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 that's all right. As long as the law is neutral, as long as it doesn't single out the Indians, it's okay. Now, here's what's telling, and it gets to your point. The U.S. Congress voted on a law to re return to the old standard, that William Brennan standard. 97 to 3 in the Senate, unanimously in the House. This law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was signed into law by the liberal president, Bill Clinton. And that illustrates that as late as 1993, we had a commitment, a national commitment to religious liberty, protecting it whenever possible. What we've seen over the last 15 years, though, is that political progressives have largely abandoned 
their commitment to religious liberty. So you've had groups like the ACLU who actually supported the Religious Freedom Restoration Act say, oh, we no longer support it. And, and on and on you go. Now, I think these groups on the left are still probably generally supportive of um, Native Americans who feel they have to use peyote. But what they are not supportive of is small business owners who feel that they cannot participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony or a medical professional who has a religious conviction against performing an abortion. When it comes to religious conservatives, the progressives want to say, well, you guys don't really get protected. And that's a shame. And it's a problem. And, um, and it's very distressing. And my goodness, um, I don't want to be too partisan, but had Hillary Clinton won in 2016, we would be seeing um, assaults on religious liberty like we've never seen before. And a U.S. Supreme Court prepared to uphold those assaults. Um, you know, speaking of, there was a there was a case, I guess, last year, maybe the year before, with uh, Senator Harris, where she was questioning this, uh, one of the Trump appointed justices, I think his name was Brian Boucher. Um, and she was saying that basically, she, she was, you know, he shouldn't be allowed on the court because he was part of this Knights of Columbus because they were pro-life and their Catholic organization. Um, that to me seems to run against everything that you're talking about that the, that the founders would have put forth as freedom of religion at the very center of the American experiment. What are your thoughts on that, her position, if, if I'm accurately reflecting where she was coming from? Yeah, no, let me say this. Absolutely right. Article 6 of the Constitution, so we don't even have to go to the First Amendment. Article 6 prohibits religious tests for office. And yeah, so in the case that you were mentioning, there's several other cases like that with Bernie Sanders going after a Trump nominee and whatnot, that basically the position is, if you have these sorts of religious views, it might not even be related to the job to which you're being appointed, um, you can't hold public office. Yeah, that's profoundly profoundly problematic. There was a case in Oregon, a, a judge, judges can, but they don't have to marry people. And this judge had a conviction that he shouldn't marry a same-sex couple if they, if they were to come to them. And so he developed a plan whereby his secretary, if the same-sex couple came to him, they would just say, oh, I'm sorry, the judge isn't available. He never implemented the plan. He eventually tossed it down and just said, okay, I won't do marriages at all, period. But simply because Oregon Barr found out that he had that plan at one point, they said, because you hold these views, you are no longer fit to be a judge. Just utterly insane and utterly wrong. The only question should be not what views do you have, but what is your performance as judge? And if you as a judge discriminated against LGBTQ citizens, then he shouldn't be a judge. Um, I, I agree with that. But simply having a view that marriage is between a man and a woman that should not disqualify one for, from public office. Wow. Can you talk about the lineup of the Supreme Court and where do they fall in regards to faith and constitution? Yeah, sure. This is one of the reasons the election of 2016 was so important. A few months before that election, Nino Scalia died. One of the greatest Supreme Court justices who ever lived, a conservative um, and originalist. And so you had a court with four liberals and four conservatives. So the next president of the United States would get to appoint a, um, this person. And fortunately, from my perspective, Donald Trump was elected president, gave us an excellent appointment in Neil Gorsuch. Um, he had a chance to appoint another one with Brett Kavanaugh, excellent Supreme Court justices. And so right now we have a court that is um, roughly 
roughly six to three, although John Roberts can be squishy sometimes. And so, you know, we have a pretty equally divided court, one could say, which is why I think the election of 2020 is so very important. Um, let me be clear. I don't want to be too partisan, but there are a lot of things I do not like about Donald Trump. I can imagine a dozen Republicans I'd rather be in position, but because he has given um, he has produced, he has um, kept his word when it comes to life issues and religious liberty issues. Um, he'll have my vote this time around, even though I cast a vote, a protest vote in 2016. You got it. Uh, so you can edit that out, Steve. I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> no, that's great. I appreciate the honesty no, there. Um, and then, you know, just when, when we see that as lay people, you know, you got the, you got the same, and, and this is not, unique maybe to the constitution. We see this in the church as well, different interpretations, but you got four judges on the one side and four on the other side on sometimes seemingly relatively easy issues, deciding completely different things. What is driving the liberal mindset in the court when they've moved away from originalism um, seemingly in many cases, what, what is, what's happening there? Yeah, to their credit, some of the um, liberal justices that I res- actually respect, even though I disagree with, will be open and forthright. They would say, we are not originalist. Um, we're interpreting the Constitution as a living document. At least that is being honest. Um, what really annoys me are the sort of people who say we're originalist and the First Amendment requires a wall of separation between church and state. There just is no good argument in that respect. So I think someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is genuinely motivated by her understanding of justice. She wants a just society, and she believes a just society requires things like abortion on demand, um, abortions that are fully paid for by the government. And I find these views uh, you know, abhorrent, but I think in her mind, and to give her credit, she really is motivated by her understanding of justice. And so this informs her Supreme Court decisions when it comes to matters like the contraceptive mandate, which um, you know the Supreme Court decided in the Hobby Lobby case a few years ago, five to four with Ginsburg and Sotomayor and a few others in dissent. You know, they were just motivated by their understanding of justice with respect to, um, to women. I, I, I think it was an absolutely appropriate decision as a matter of law and as a matter of public policy. I just don't think people should be forced to um, pay for things that they believe cause uh, abortions. I don't know, even if it was legally permissible, why anyone would think that was a good idea to force someone to participate in killing someone else against their their will. Let let me point out, incidentally, that many other areas of American law recognize this. So since the earliest colonial days, and certainly since the first Selective Service Act in World War I, we've said, we as Americans have said, we are not going to force religious pacifists to serve in the military against their conscience. Why would we do that? That would be cruel and and horrible. We'll make them serve in other ways. Um, Since 1973, the Church Amendment requires any medical facility receiving federal funds, and almost all of them do in one way or the other, um, the Church Amendment, Frank Church, incidentally, is a Democrat, a Democrat from Idaho. Um, It says that a, a medical professional cannot be forced to perform an abortion. One last example, if you work for the for a prison system, federal or state, you cannot be forced to participate in an execution against your religious conviction. Oh. These are all great things. And I don't know why people just forget it when it comes to abortion and say people should be forced mm-hmm. to pay for the abortions of others. It's a violation of what the founders would call the sacred rights of conscience. Mm. Wow. That's really good. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I know we're going a little longer here. Do you maybe have maybe 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes? 
however long you guys want to talk. Okay. Right, man, we're enjoying. We might keep so you good. all night here. You got to give him a cutoff. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, we, we just don't, um, I'll come back to that, our lack of civic education these days. But, you know, for us, many of us, we're climb out, climbing out of a hole of ignorance because we just don't know anything about government, how it should function, how it's informed by the Bible. Um, and so even for us Christians, um, this is this is what our hope is to get to recover understanding knowledge and therefore civic engagement from a Christian perspective. Um, you know, just another part of this justice thing, this might be – conspiratorial but do you think there's reason to fear if if progressives get in power or in this case biden kamala harris that they will try to pack the court you know if heard um claims that they might try to go up to 15 to ensure that they kind of get their view of justice put through is there fear is is that a legitimate fear we might should have you know i I think it's a legitimate concern of course um, franklin roosevelt tried that in the 1930s and he had overwhelming majorities in the House and the Senate. But even so, there's so much pers- pushback that he eventually abandoned that plan. And so I would hope there would be that sort of pushback today. But I wouldn't count on it. I, I, I think they could well try that. Very interesting. Did you have something? Yeah. As your, um, what is your um, lay of the land in regards to uh, your field as a professor and concerning millennials and um, just being an originalist with the Constitution, are you encouraged by what you see or concerned in regards to your students? Yeah, so um, you know, George Fox University is a Christian school that takes okay. a Christian commitment seriously. So I think our students aren't necessarily representative, um, but we do know, and I've seen surveys on this, um, both Christian youth and and other youth tend to be very progressive. Certainly on LGBTQ issues, they tend to be very you know, a bit skeptical of, say, religious liberty claims. So when they hear about the florist who refused to participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony, they immediately say, that's discrimination and that's wrong. Um, it is, in, in, a, in a sense, discrimination, but not all discrimination is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And so I try to engage them by asking them questions. They, uh, for instance, an obviously related question, let's say you're an African-American baker and the local chapter, the KKK, comes to you and says, wow. bake a cake saying black people are, are stupid. Um, would we want the baker to discriminate? And even if he's a white baker, yes, we'd want him to discriminate and not do that, right? You ought not to act in a way that you consider to be immoral or wrong or unjust. And so when I I, I mentioned that, you know, that usually gets the wheels turning and they don't immediately Mm. come around, but at least they're thinking about it. And so I think we have to reach out to millennials. I was just at an event with Charlie Kirk. I don't know him, but he's obviously intimately involved in attempting to reach out to millennials. And I think those sorts of um, activities have to be supported. Okay. So uh, I work at a large church in, in Tampa, and we actually had a special guest, David Barton from Wall Builders, actually came. Um, I'm sure you, you've heard of him, but you know he presented many original documents, uh, seemingly original works, and he appealed to that kind of hard evidence that you would expect to build a good case out of. And it was interesting how many people resisted what he was saying, and even basically some called him a racist even. Um, And what is it about maybe our current climate or the culture, but why do you think, especially young people, seem to even reject these original documents? It's just like these plain words that the founders would have written, and that even those seem to be rejected for who knows what else. Yeah, usually not for a good reason, right? And I um, I think this is important to say, look, 
first of all, we want an accurate account of history just for its own sake. And so here I'm presenting a bunch of evidence. And if you don't like my interpretation of the evidence, why do you think I'm wrong? Do you think I'm neglecting evidence? If so, what is that evidence? And we can have that sort of discussion. It's a separate discussion how normative that history should be. And so I actually could appreciate a, um, uh, someone who says, yes, I understand America's founders didn't desire a wall of separation between church and state, but I think we should have one today for reasons A, B, and C. Well, fine, let's have that debate about reasons A, B, and C. So I, th I think we have to um, have to make sure we understand what the question is, what we're debating, and, and what the standards of the debate are. Um, with something like calling David Barton a racist, I, I, I'm very familiar with this work. And if you go to the website, they oftentimes will highlight African-American patriots and great African-Americans throughout American history. I know of no reason whatsoever to call him a racist. And I think it's a very serious accusation. So I would say if someone's making that sort of accusation, we should say, what is the evidence? And to flip that sort of example, people who claim that Barack Obama was a Muslim, I think we should ask them, what is your evidence? And the fact that his dad was a Muslim, that doesn't mean he's a Muslim, right? And he clearly identifies as a Christian, attended a Christian church and so forth. I will not presume to judge the interior of his heart. I don't know what he really believes, but I will say that I think there's no good reason to believe that he's a Muslim in the same way. I think there's no good reason to believe that David Barton's a, a, a racist. And if you want to make such a serious accusation, you really should provide evidence to support it. Yeah, President Obama told me in a private conversation he was a Muslim. But um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, so here we're talking about did America have a Christian founding? And the answer, of course, that Dr. Hall's given is yes, depending on what you mean by Christian, depending on what you mean by founding. He goes into great depth here, and I want to encourage you to get that book again. But as we as we wrap up this, and I want to jump in a few more questions just for our Patreons in a minute, but what what's the big idea of this book and why is it important that people know what you're saying in 2020? Well, that's excellent. So um, for me, it's simply enough to get history right for itself. Mm -hmm. However, in this book, I attempted to do something my wife has been challenging me to do for over a decade. And that is, she asked me, why does it matter? What's the payoff, right? Like, why does it matter to us today? And so I attempt to do that in, her, in the book. I, um, I connect it to matters of law and public policy. I make it clear this is how jurists go about interpreting the First Amendment. I make it clear that politicians um, you know, rely on the founders' views. But then in the conclusion, I kind of bring it home. And I say, look, if we um, agree with James Wilson, the great founder, that it's important to revisit first principles, the first principles of any regime. And this isn't just an American thing. It would apply if you're Japanese or French or whatever, um, whichever regime you live in. Then if we go back to the founders, we can see some very important principles. The idea that humans are created in the image of God, it should be treated with respect and dignity. And it certainly should not be killed in the womb, right? The idea that religious liberty is very important and must be robustly protected. The idea that the Constitution does not require a wall of separation between church and state. And there I'm very careful to say that means certain things like protecting religious pacifists are clearly constitutionally appropriate. Uh, but then I go on to say I think it would be imprudent to have subsidies for churches or teacher-led prayer in public school as a matter of prudence, not as a matter of constitutional law. And then I do some, um, you know, kind of flat out challenging, challenging my fellow believers in Christ to be involved in politics, 
Um, I know most of us uh, you know, have a lot of extra money laying around, but there are some wonderful groups out there, the Christian Legal Society, Alliance Defending Freedom, the First Liberty Institute, the Beckett Fund, that are fighting for religious liberty for all Americans every day in the nation's courtrooms. And so to consider giving funds, if you have funds available to organizations like this, I think they're, it's a very good investment. Uh, that's great. And, you know, you made me think of one last thing. I kind of want to wrap it up here with. Um, it seems to me that one of the things that comes out of your work and even this interview here is one of the central features in the f- founder's mind for creating this government based on biblical principles was freedom of religion and conscience. And that to me seems to be one of the main things that's under threat right now with the mainstream political movement that we see in Hollywood and popular social media and and the democratic policies as it's swinging more and more leftward. I think, and you've talked about this elsewhere, that that's more in line with French Revolution Enlightenment, where in the name of equality, quote unquote, which is equality of outcomes in many cases, they're throwing away the central most important feature that has allowed this country not only to get off the ground, but to continue to progress toward greater and greater freedom and greater equality, actually, in many ways. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it was very well said. Um, I I think you're exactly right that religious liberty is under assault, and um, we would be foolish to just sit back and and not do anything about it. Fortunately, we live in a country where we have the ability to act. We can we can vote, we can contact our legislators, we can support these organizations fighting for religious liberty. And I, I think there's every reason to do so. With respect to equality, I would just simply highlight the importance of fighting for the religious liberty for all Americans, not just our fellow, fellow Christians. Yes, mm. well, thank you. Okay. And then for our Patreons, as we're going to talk about, I-, I want to ask you a little bit more about the slavery issue in your second book. You're, you got a sequel coming out to this. Yeah. I want to just talk briefly about what, what it covers. Yeah. And I also got a question about um, Puritans and racism or Puritans and slavery uh, from a Twitter debate that I saw the other day. So if, you, uh, if you're not a Patreon yet, you can click on the link below. And for as little as $1,000 a month, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you can uh, become a Patreon. So we're, we're, we're believing for that 2020 favor. So come on and go on, go on and step up. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark David Hall. Don't forget, you can check out the bonus episode for this week on patreon.com slash freemindfm. There's a link in show notes to that, but support the show with any amount per month and you get access to all the back catalog of bonus episodes, including our questions from this week's special guest. We'd love to interact with you on social media. You can find us at freemindfm on Instagram and Twitter and freemindpodcastfm on Facebook. And if you could take a moment and give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate that so we can rise the ranks and be discovered by more people looking for Christian apologetics and worldview content. And don't forget, you can also watch this episode and many of our recent episodes on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. Subscribe there and you can watch these episodes on YouTube. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>